The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to Revelation chapter 22. And it has been my distinct privilege for these past 16 weeks to preach on the subject of heaven. Now, it's taken me 14 years to do a series on heaven. So this may be the last time it will ever happen again. Uh, this may be the end of our lives as far as learning about heaven is concerned. You'll, you'll hear about it many more times, but uh, 16 sermons, 16 weeks about heaven... And when I started the series back in February, I had two motives in mind, two reasons why I wanted to preach on heaven. We'd just come out of a series about the devil, the delusion of the devil, and in the last few messages of that series, I spoke about hell. And hell is the place where Satan is going to be cast for his eternal destruction, and all those people who do not believe in Jesus Christ are also going to be in hell uh, we tend to think that hell is for the most deserving, that there will be murderers and thieves and rapists and pornographers in hell. But we fail to realize that many of our friends and family will also be there. And that's because the greatest sin that anyone can commit is the final rejection of Jesus Christ as Savior. And the Word of God says that all that reject Him will have their place in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Hell is a very, very scary subject. We ought to warn people about it. We ought to tell people that, that hell is coming, that hell is waiting for them, even if they don't think that they're bad enough to go there. The truth is, anybody who doesn't know Christ, who has not trusted Him alone by faith alone, is going to be in hell. But I was preaching that series about hell and about Satan, and I didn't want to end on that sad note, especially with, with Christian people. So I wanted to move on to something else that would kind of lift our spirits to think about the life and the hope that we're going to have because we are going to be in heaven. But then there was a second motivation for it, and that is because um, of the prevalence of the misunderstandings that there are in the world today about heaven and such erroneous information that is put out there and all the false things that are taught about it that I felt like we needed to get the truth of it out. I mean, you have these books that are written, and I'm very seriously irritated by this, the, the prevalency of all these books that people write about having died and gone to heaven, and then they've come back to tell us what it's like in order to convince us that heaven is real. And then I'm even more irritated by preachers who teach their people these things, and the people believe them, and they, they accept that nonsense as if this is the truth, this is to be believed. But I'll just say this, if you believe the things that you read in those books, that is like slapping God in the face. You say, why do you say that? Because we're telling God that we can't trust Him that heaven is real just because He said that it's real. Well, God has told us about heaven in His Word. He tells us that it's real, and so we don't need someone else to verify God or set the record straight for God that God doesn't know how to reveal Himself. Oh, He's told us everything that He wants us to know in His Word, and we don't have to go to somebody who's theologically bonkers to have them explain to us what heaven is like. Well, today we've come to the end of the series, and I want to give you some thoughts on the fifth verse of Revelation chapter 22. I want to discuss this verse and then we're going to go to the fifth chapter of Revelation to discuss the worship of Jesus Christ, the reason for our place in heaven. I want you to notice first from the fifth verse what I would like to call the light of life. Now, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about heaven in relation to life. And here we see the light of life. Verse number five, And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Heaven is a place of continuously streaming light that comes from the throne of God. 
Now, the Scriptures have a lot to say about this, and we've noted several times in this study the significance of light, that light is very highly symbolic. It's the first thing that God created when He first formed this world for habitation. When God said, let there be light, then there was a world, that physical, a physical light that was opened up, and that physical light became emblematic of all that God is. In fact, we have in 1 John this statement that God is light. Now, obviously, John did not mean that God is a physical beam of light. He couldn't be because God created light. But light becomes an emblem. It becomes a symbol of everything that God is. There are several answers to the question. What does light represent in the Scriptures? In 1 John, light represents knowledge. And specifically, it's the knowledge of Christ that those who know Christ are said to be enlightened. Their understanding has been opened up to, to see that Jesus Christ is the God who saves us from our sins. In 1 John, light also represents life. And life ties into the knowledge of Christ because those who have been enlightened, those who understand who Christ is, have been brought out of their spiritual darkness into the light. They're brought out of spiritual death. And that's the contrast that we see throughout the Scriptures. Light opposes darkness, that light is life, and light is in Jesus Christ, and anything else is spiritual death. Life is the knowledge and understand is knowledge and understanding and darkness is ignorance and blindness and the bible teaches that darkness is the natural condition of the human heart that we don't have any understanding of god and just like god had to create light out of the darkness at the very beginning so it's god who must create light in the darkness of the human heart in order that we might understand the things of christ the eyes of spiritual understanding are blind and they can only be opened up by the glorious light of the gospel of Christ. I remember speaking to a man once who said to me, please tell me more about Jesus. I don't know who he is. Now, he didn't mean that he'd never heard of Jesus. This is not a man that I met in a jungle of Africa, not in South America. He was in this country, in America, where you have churches in every neighborhood. But there are far too many people in this country who have heard of Jesus, but they don't know who he really is. We expect that we would find that problem in a third world country. We expect to find the darkness of not knowing who Jesus is in communist China. It would be in North Korea or someplace like that. It would be where 7th century Islam holds the people in bondage. But we don't expect that here in the United States of America, where most of the people claim to be Christians, that we would find people who say, we don't really know who Jesus is. And what is our problem? People in churches... We're not talking about those just have never been to church. We're talking about people who are in churches don't know who Jesus is. They have a fantasy Jesus. They have a sugar daddy Jesus who gives them a prosperity gospel. They have a cultural Jesus, one who looks like them, one who meets their personal ideas, one who is just like us, who thinks like us, whose opinions conveniently are the same opinions that we hold. America is full of people that are Christians in name only. And so these are ones that we're talking about that are so easily duped by these fairy tale books about heaven. They don't have an idea who Jesus is. And churches that are supposed to be beacons of the light to bring people out of spiritual darkness are actually places of darkness themselves. The darkness of the church, folks, actually is the worst darkness of all because we are supposed to be bringing people out of the darkness when instead we're leaving them in the darkness, believing that they're actually in the light. There are people that are deep into spiritual blackness and darkness who think that they're living in the light. Some of you have experienced this. You may have family members that are Roman Catholic. How difficult is it to deal with them? They're blinded by, to the truth, as 2 Corinthians 4 says. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, and whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The Roman Catholic believes that he's in the light. He believes that the Pope is a beacon of light. 
wherein the Pope is a deceiver. He's an antichrist who he keeps 1.2 billion people in the dark. He doesn't lead people to Christ. He leads them further away from them, him and, and leaves them in the darkness. And so it's harder for us to go to religious people who say, I know all about Jesus, than it is to talk to people who say, I don't know anything about him at all. It's the religious person, the person who claims to be Christian, who thinks that he's living in the light, who's actually harder to reach than people who have never heard of him. Light is life, darkness is death. Life is eternal life, darkness is eternal death. Darkness is spiritual death. And all people who have not been born again by faith alone and Christ alone are in that spiritual death. Well, we find a couple of more images about darkness contrasted with light in the Scriptures. It might surprise you to learn that the Bible says that Christians can act like they're living in the darkness. They can act like they're living in the night rather than in the light. The Bible says that Christians like this are sleeping. And when do we sleep? Well, we sleep in the night. We sleep when it's dark. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Ye are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. You see the difference? Christians are children of the light. We are told we should not sleep. And by that he means that we're not to act as if we are in spiritual darkness. We're to put on the indicators of spiritual life, which he describes here as being a breastplate of faith and of love and a helmet of salvation. These are indicators that we do live in the light and we carry this shield of faith and we fight the good fight of faith because we are alive unto Jesus Christ, not appointed to the wrath of God. Christians need to take heed of that. I think most of you that would show up today, you've taken heed to it, but I still need to warn folks about it, that Christians are often guilty of projecting darkness rather than light. There's already too much darkness that is in the world for Christians to hide the light of Christ under the cloak of darkness of their sins and immoral lifestyles. So what verse 8 does there in 1 Thessalonians is to call uh, uh, the Christian to action, we're to stop sleeping, we're to put on the whole armor of God because God has appointed us to be agents of the light, not sleeping guards derelict to their duties. Now there's another interesting symbolism of light in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where Paul writes in the great love chapter, he says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Now we are given the light of life in this Christ. When you become a Christian, that, that light shines into you. The glorious gospel opens all of this up. But we don't yet fully understand everything there is to know about God. In a measure, we're still living in a little bit of darkness because there are things that we just don't understand. And so... It's like looking through a foggy, smoking glass when we, smoky glass when we think about the things of God. We still have an old sinful nature in us, and that blinds us or keeps us somewhat in the dark, not understanding everything that God is. Well, since we have so much symbolism of light and darkness in the Scriptures, what do we expect that we would find in heaven? Is there going to be any part of the darkness that we have in us that remains when we get to heaven? Will there be any twilight? so to speak. Are we still going to be looking at things like looking through the foggy morning as it was this morning? Not able to clearly see things? Well, here's the answer in the Scriptures. It says, And there shall be no more night there, for the Lord God shall give them light, or is the light. Light is understanding. So all the misconceptions that we have about God, they're going to be cleared up when we get to heaven. I don't suppose that I'll need to have another Sunday morning forum class 
in heaven because there won't be anything for me to explain. The deep things of God that all of us aren't clear on, you're not going to need somebody to explain those because there your understanding will be opened up to see who God is and God himself will be your teacher and you'll be able to understand everything that God says. Oh, we long for that day when we have no more questions, when these things that come up before our class and things that you ask me that you don't understand and I have difficulty dealing with it, we, we don't need to worry about that anymore in heaven because there we are with Christ. We're living in the light of Christ and that is that knowledge and understanding of Him. So heaven is knowledge, heaven is light, and heaven is also a place of eternal life. There is no death. What is the source of that light? Well, we saw it in chapter 21, verse 23. The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. No one cast a shadow in heaven. There is light above us, light beneath us, light all around us. No darkness can be found. Now, if we go back to Paul's comment in 1 Thessalonians 5, he said that we are children of the light and children of the day. God gave us the night for sleep and rest. But I get the impression that nighttime was a hindrance to Paul. I wonder why he spoke so much about this, using these metaphors of night and day. I think that night was a hindrance to Paul. Now, of course, he knew that people need sleep and rest. It's good for your body to go to sleep at night. But I, I picture the Apostle Paul as a man who laid in bed waiting for the alarm clock to go off. Or in his case, he's waiting for someone to squeeze the rooster a little bit early. He wants to get up because there's things to do. You can't get people saved when they're asleep. People sleep at night, and so he didn't like the night because it hindered the work that he wanted to do for Christ, and he felt that there was so much that he, that he, that he wanted to do. I think that Paul was probably the busiest man that ever lived. He's a man that never complained about burnout. He was often weary, but he never stopped. And I think Paul... As a man who really liked heaven, or he likes heaven now because there is, no, there is no night there. Nobody ever sleeps for a moment in heaven. They're always serving and praising God. You see, people in heaven are energized for worship. Many people think that continuous worship in heaven, what are you saying? I mean, that's too much. Heaven will be terribly boring if all that we ever do is worship. Why do we think like that? Because we think like we think. We, we want heaven to be about us, about things that we like to do, about what it, we enjoy on the earth, and we think that's what heaven's going to be, doing the things that we like. And so we're not concerned about what God wants in heaven. We want heaven to be what we want heaven to be. Well, how about this? Your mind is going to be changed when you get to heaven. When you get to heaven, your mind is going to be like the angels who worship God continuously. You love to worship God. I think heaven is going to be somewhat like a Sunday morning, one of those Sunday mornings when we're singing the songs that we sing and you really, really feel it in your heart and you really feel close to God and you're just lifting up your heart and you're singing. You think, oh, this feels so good. And then the preacher preaches a dynamite sermon that you can't get over. Maybe that'll happen here someday, I don't know, but you know what I'm talking about. I mean, just that feeling that you're so close to God. Now imagine that God would give you that feeling all of the time. How good does that feel to be close to God? And God energizes you with that so that you feel that way all of the time. The greatest happiness that a Christian could ever have is being close to God. And when you get to heaven, that's where you'll be, close to God. No boredom there because you're changed so that your greatest desire is always Christ. Your greatest desire, you feel the best when you're close to Him. And in heaven, you'll always be close to Him. There is no night. There is no time away from the light of God's presence. Look at, the, look at the last part of our verse. It says, For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So you ask the question, what are we going to do when we get to heaven? This is it. We're going to reign. That means you're going to live like a king. Listen to what Daniel says. Daniel seven eighteen. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Jesus said in Revelation three twenty one, 
to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. What we need to do is put Daniel 7.18 with Revelation 3.21. Now, if you're a student of the Scripture, you know that what Daniel refers to is the Millennial Kingdom. The Millennial Kingdom lasts for a thousand years, and yet Daniel wrote there that we're going to reign forever and forever. And so you say, how is that possible? He's talking about the thousand-year reign. Well, if that's all that he's talking about, and we're talking about eternal life here, then is he saying that eternal life lasts for a thousand years? If that's what he's saying, then eternal life has a cap on it, doesn't it? So we combine that with Revelation 3.21 to see the glorious kingdom of God transfers, it lasts on the earth for a thousand years, then it transfers into the glories of heaven where we shall reign with God forever and forever. And that eternal life has a warranty that comes with it. You ever bought a product that said it's good for life? And you ever ask, whose life? Well, the guarantee, the warranty of eternal life The guarantee is Christ's life. It is His life, and He lives forever. And so as long as He lives, we will live, we will reign with Him, we'll be in His throne, enjoying the same length of life as God Himself. So eternity will be spent doing what God does, because God is the one who defines eternal life. Well, now I'd like us to go to the fifth chapter of Revelation. What are we going to do in heaven? I mean, th- this is where we're, we're going to end the series about life in heaven. What are we going to do when we get to heaven? We're not going to sleep because there isn't any night there. So what will we do? Well, we're going to do something that I enjoy very much. We're going to sing. We're going to worship when we get to heaven. What are we going to sing? Well, our song is going to be the song of salvation. Heaven is going to be like a great choir rehearsal of all the songs that relate to the story of Jesus. A few weeks ago, we looked at the contrast between Genesis and Revelation. Those things that started in Genesis reached their consummation in Revelation. The Bible is the unfolding story of how that Christ would redeem man from the fall. How man would be brought back to God. In Genesis 3.15, we're promised that that would happen. W.A. Criswell called the story of Christ throughout the Bible the scarlet thread of redemption. He said there's a scarlet thread that runs throughout the stories of the Bible as God relates how he works with his people. And do you know it's actually true that you can put your finger on any page in the Bible and somewhere in the context of that page you are going to find something out about Jesus Christ. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, you've got to dig deep sometimes to find it. But then other times, the truth is laying right up here on the surface where you can just grab it. I mean, it seems so apparent, it's easy to see. Now, I think about that great story where W.A. Criswell actually got his analogy, the scarlet thread of redemption. And that's the story of Rahab that we find in the book of Joshua. And you remember how Rahab... Uh, told the spies, I I believe in your God. Remember me when you come to destroy this city. Save me. And they said, well, if you put a scarlet thread in the window, let it hang down. When we come, we'll see that thread, and everybody in your house, everybody that's in your house will be saved from the destruction of the city. I don't think you could read that without seeing Jesus Christ, that that scarlet thread represents the blood of Christ and destruction, the relief for being saved from the destruction of hell. Another example we find that's just right up here on top is that rock in the wilderness that Moses struck. When Moses hit the rock, water gushed out of it, and that was a symbol that Christ had to be smitten in order for us to get the water of life. And 1 Corinthians explains that to us and says that rock was Christ. There's another picture that we see and I'm actually going to talk about this on Father's Day, that Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac, the son of promise, but God stopped him, and God provided his own sacrifice as a payment for our sins. And there, a great picture of Jesus Christ, that God did not spare his son, but gave him 
as a sacrifice for sin. And we could go on and on because, as I said, on every page we can find Christ. So then we go to chapter 5 to read these words beginning in verse number 1. And I saw, this is John, looking into heaven, and I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. John said he saw a book in heaven. Now get in your mind a picture of what this book is, because it's not like a book that you pick up at the public library. This book is a scroll. Back in those days, that's what a book was. It was a scroll. And this book had seals on it. You would read a part of the book, and then you'd come to a seal, and the seal had to be broken in order to read the next part. Well, this book that John saw, or this scroll that he saw, had seven seals on it, so the first one allowed you to read a little bit of it, and then you come to the second seal, you break it, and then you can read a little bit more, and in succession those seals are broken until finally you're able to read everything that's in the book. Now, let, let me tell you why this book couldn't be opened. This book, or this scroll, is the title deed to the earth. The earth has an owner. There is someone who possesses this deed, and only the owner can open it and read the scroll. Now, as you know, the power and authority of God has been usurped for a time on the earth. Satan tempted man, Adam fell, and so God cursed the earth. And this earth is now under the dominion of sin... Satan is called the God of this world, but that doesn't mean that Satan owns the world. The world is not his. But what God has done, he has ceded some authority in the world to Satan for a time. Satan is in control of the earth. That's part of God's curse that he put on it. But we have to understand this, that Satan only does what God allows him to do. He can't go any further than God allows him. God has him on a leash. He can't do the worst that he could do because God restrains him from it. But Satan is able to do enough. And all the misery that we experience in the world is tied to the activity of Satan. This scroll is the title deed to the earth and no one, including Satan, can open it. The scroll contains information about how God is going to rid the world of Satan and then buy it back from the curse of sin that he put on it. The scroll is the end of the redemption story. In Revelation, we're coming down to the end when God is going to restore the world to the perfect creation that it was from the time that God said, let there be light, and then six days later when he looked at all the creation, he said, it is good. God is going to restore the world back to that state. Now, do you see in verse number 3, it says, but there's a problem here. No one can open this book. John knew what it was. And in this magnificent scene in heaven, it appears to him that all is lost. There is no one to open the book. Even the mighty angels that are there, they can't open this book. Oh, the angels have so much power that one angel can just destroy everything if God allowed him to do it. But all the mighty angels that are in heaven, they cannot open this scroll because the book is not theirs. Redemption is not theirs to accomplish. And then man can't do it. All the people that died and went to heaven that John saw there, there was not a man who could open redemption scroll because it's not for man to do. Man has no claim upon the earth. We can't fix what happened in Adam's fall. Now remember this. This is why in heaven that we're never, never going to worship an angel. We're not going to worship Mary. Forget all the foolishness that Mary is the queen of heaven. You're not going to be worshiping Mary when you get to heaven. You're not going to worship any man. There's not a pope who has a ring that needs to be kissed and at whose feet you will bow. No, heaven is about the worship of Jesus Christ. Verse 4 says, John wept because there was no one worthy to open the book. And what he's telling us here, don't put your confidence in any person. Don't put your confidence in people. 
Because Christ is the only one who is worthy. Well, the next chapter begins the opening of these seals, and it's simply horrible. Each one of them brings about death and destruction. There's terrible upheaval. And you need to know who is going to open that book. Who is the one who's going to unleash all of this devastation on the sin-cursed earth? Who is going to purge the earth of all of its wickedness? Verse number 5 begins to describe him. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we think for just a moment about those pictures in the Old Testament, that scarlet thread that's running through. And I'd love to take you back to Genesis chapter 49 where it says there that in Jacob's blessing that the scepter will not depart from Judah. That was speaking about Christ who would come. It's part of the scarlet thread of redemption found in Judah. Then we see here the root of David. And that's a mystifying thing. People would read this. He's the root of David, but he's also, he is also the originator of David. He's before David. He's before Judah. Who is this one that can open the book? Verse 6 also says that he is a lamb. That's outstanding. Because who would think of a sweet little lamb that's capable of unleashing all the devastation of the seven seals? Could this lamb do it? John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And what we see here is the consummation of what it takes to take away the sin of the world. And who is that Lamb? Who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah? Who's the Root of David? That person is Jesus Christ. And if you want to know who Jesus really is, He is the God who is able to redeem man and the physical world from the curse of sin. And He doesn't need help from anybody. He's capable of doing it himself, and he's the only one who can do it. And so this is what Christ does. He takes away the sin of the world. Redemption is a long, long story. It's time-consuming. It it's relates to that promise in Genesis 3.15, and then for thousands of years, people were waiting for this redemption to unfold, to begin. And then in Matthew 1.25, it started and that's when Jesus was born. The angels heralded the birth of Christ because they knew that redemption had begun. Christ had come in the fullness of time. Uh, redemption didn't begin at the cross. It began with Jesus' birth. The birth is the beginning of it because in order for Christ to die for sin, He had to be born and then to live a perfect life. The cross was the huge milestone that guaranteed that redemption would come, and then the resurrection of Christ sealed the guarantee that God accepted the, the sacrifice, that, that He would put all things under the feet of Christ, and He would reign. But this had to happen first. Jesus had to be born, and He must be born of a woman. And that was to ensure that He would have no sin. The sin is passed on, the sin nature is passed on from the Father to the children. And Jesus was not born of a human father, He's born of God in order that He might be the God-man. So he's born as a human and as God. He's born as a human to die. And he must be God in order to be perfect and be able to provide an infinite sacrifice. This is so incomprehensible. This is the part of the redemption story that just blows our mind. So many parts of it does. But what about this? That the almighty God became human flesh. And that's what Jesus did. This is the part that's so hard to overcome the Jews and the Greeks could not accept it. The Greeks said, that doesn't fit our philosophy. The flesh is evil, so how can God ever become flesh? And they stumbled at the, at the fact in their philosophy that it said, they said it can't happen. And the Jews stumbled at it as well because Christ was a barrier to their own self-righteousness. They couldn't accept the incarnation. But here it is. Here we see in heaven Jesus Christ, the one who is the God-man, He's the Lamb of sacrifice, the one who takes away the sin of the world. Only He is worthy. And then thus commences this thunderous song of salvation. This is the praise of the Redeemer as it explodes and rocks the whole heaven in a tumultuous chorus. Heaven will be filled with the praises of Christ. And we would just have to ask, what is worth, more worth, timeless time to do than to worship Jesus Christ? Verse number 9, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue 
and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. It's a new song, the Word of God says. Why is it new? Why, why hasn't this song been sung before? Weren't songs like this always sung in heaven? Weren't they sung at the creation? This is what God says in Job 38. Where wast thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who hath laid the cornerstone thereof? Listen, verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That tells us that the creation was celebrated. We can't even imagine the singing in heaven that went on when the Creator sat down at the end of six days of creation and pronounced it all good. But the song that we're talking about here could not yet be sung. It wasn't sung at the beginning. At the birth of Christ, which I told you is the beginning of the redemption story, the heavenly chorus rang out, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But this is not a song that could have been sung yet. The song of redemption has no composer. Not until man fell and he's ready to be redeemed can this song be sung. The song is new, and this scene in Revelation is the first day that this song can be sung. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb of God, opens up the seals. And then creation is brought back to God. What are we going to do in heaven? We're going to sing redemption song. Salvation in Christ will be on our lips forever. We'll look at the diamond walls. We'll look at the pearly gates. We'll see the streets of gold. We'll live in the brilliant light. And we will recognize that all of it was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that sight? Verse 11 says, And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beast and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. How many are in this chorus of heaven? 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's not a number for calculation. It's not saying, well, you can figure this out. No, it's actually saying it's a chorus without number. You can't add this up. You can't multiply it. You can't find the answer to it. This is beyond what the human mind can fathom. I've heard some, some really massive choirs sing the Hallelujah Chorus, and I've heard people just being awed at the majesty and the sweetness of the tones as they're sung. But we're talking about something far beyond that here. All of the angels are there. Untold millions of them are there. But the most important thing that we read about who is there to sing this song comes in verse number 9. It says, For thou, thou wast slain and has redeemed us to God. By the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. It tells us that God is no respecter of persons. Anybody from any race, any nationality, any ethnicity, any social stratum, anyone can come to Christ, may come to Christ to be redeemed. The redeemed sing the song of salvation, a song that angels can't sing. Song of redemption is not for them. Christ didn't die for them. However, I do think this, that this chorus can be joined at a point by the angels as they praise the Lamb for the accomplishment of the work that He's done for us. And then the angels in, in this scene are going to reach their purpose, the fulfillment of their purpose as well, because they are there to praise God forever, but also to be ministers to the people of God. Now, I want you to note this. Very important, I think. That this is not a song about a failed Christ. This is not about a Christ who tried to save some that he couldn't save. None that he came to save are left out of this chorus. This song has no verse that says... 
You died for some that you couldn't save. We wish that they were here, but you did the best that you can, and you got as many as you could get. Now, this is a song of triumph. Jesus saves, we sang a little while ago, Jesus saves. That is what he does. The lion of the tribe of Judah conquers. The lion of the tribe of Judah brings salvation to every corner of the earth, every part of the globe, and as many as Christ came for, he saves. And now the words of the song. What is the song that we sing? It gives us the words. Worthy is the Lamb. He's worthy of everything. Worthy of everything that we can bring to Him. He is worthy of every superlative that we can heap on Him. And when our understanding is cleared up, how many more superlatives will we know when we get to heaven? We live in the perfect light of understanding. How much more praise can we heap upon the one who saves us from our sins. Oh, He's worthy of all that He owns. He's worthy of all power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. All blessings flow from Him, and so He is worthy. Verse 13, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto Him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. This heavenly throng cannot stop its praises of the one who is worthy. And then verse 14. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. I think that we need to understand verse number 14. Who are these? that are also here in this vast throng that sing the praises of God. It says four beasts. That sounds very ominous. But these aren't brute beasts. These aren't devouring, frightening wild animals. Look back into chapter 4 a moment in verse number 6. It says, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts, full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had the face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever. The beasts are living creatures. Beast is somewhat an unfortunate translation for modern readers. The angelic creatures is what these are. They are angels. And the translators used the word beast to, to distinguish them from men. These angels are actually the highest order of all the angels whose duty it is to keep the praises of God going continually. Now sometime later, maybe another time, we'll talk about the four faces of these beasts and what those represent. But I, I will tell you this much about the multiple eyes. The multiple eyes stand for wisdom. These are eyes, the wisdom of God. These are eyes, multiple eyes that are opened up to behold the glory of God. And then look at this in verse number 8. They never rest, but they are always saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which is and was, which was and is and is to come. You know, that's what heaven's like. Do you understand that? That, that? That's what heaven is. It never stops. Never for a minute is there not somewhere in heaven where the praises of God are being sung. I don't care where you go in heaven. You're going to hear that chorus in the background all the time. Holy, holy, holy to the Lord God. But in this throne room, there are also some others. There are also 24 elders there. And these are not angels. These are men. So what do they represent? Now we have this vast multitude that it talks about. We have the beasts that it talks about. The angelic creatures that are there. Then it says there are 24 elders. Who are they? Well, 12 and 24. 24, a multiple of of twelve. Twelve stands for the, the providential selection of God's people. God chose Israel. And so we have twelve elders that represent Israel. 
the names of the tribes of Israel are written in the gates, the gates of pearl in the new Jerusalem. And that is to show us that God has chosen the nation of Israel. They're represented there. And then there are 12 more. And these 12 other men represent 12 that were chosen by Jesus. These represent the apostles who were first set in the church. So we're looking at these 12. That represents the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church that he gave himself for. And so here represented 12 from the Old Testament, 12 from the New Testament, tells us that all the redeemed of God from the beginning of creation to the end to the last time of the last person that had saved, they're all represented in heaven. That's to tell you that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, no matter at what time that you live, you are going to be in heaven. You're going to be guaranteed a place in heaven. These are your representatives. And what do they do? All of them fall down and worship before the throne. What are you going to do in heaven? Fall down and worship before the throne. Verse 14, And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. This is what heaven is. This is our picture of heaven. Heaven is about Christ. It's always and only about Jesus Christ. Now, in all the books that you may have read about near-death experiences, have you ever read one that focuses on this scene? I would say probably not. I haven't seen one. And that's because the author of those books, he's the real hero of the story. He's the one that died and went to heaven. You didn't get to do that. He's the real hero. And he just rakes in the money from all the book sales. But what is heaven? It's not him. And heaven is not you. Heaven is Christ. I preached all of this to you in these weeks because heaven is where I want you to be. The message of the gospel is that all people can live in the glorious light of heaven, a place where the dark night of sin is over, where despair is over. In heaven there are no tears, there's no death, there's no sorrow, no crying, there's no pain. None of those things exist because God is nothing but pure light and life, and his people will live with him, and he will be their God forever. The best news that you will ever receive is that you can actually fulfill the purpose for which you were born. Do you know what it is? It is to glorify God. If you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior... You can fulfill the purpose for which you were made. You don't have to wander aimlessly and say, why am I here? What is my purpose in life? I can tell you what your purpose in life is. To magnify Jesus Christ, to glorify Him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God. That's your purpose in life. Now, in the first message about heaven many, many weeks ago, I introduced the topic with Jesus' comforting words to his disciples in John 14. And I think it's a good place to go back to, to end it all, to end our series. John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will Come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye, there you, may be also. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with joy in our hearts, thinking about heaven. The redeemed of God will live there. And we're thankful, Lord, that as we look out over the congregation today, we see many who have professed faith in you. They've turned to you for salvation. One of these days they will be able to sing that song in heaven, sing salvation songs, sing about redemption, because you died for them and you've ransomed their souls and you promised that you would bring them to heaven to be with you. Lord, I thank you for those people here that know you as Savior. But as always, Lord, our heart is also burdened for those who have not believed Maybe there's someone here today who hasn't received you as Savior. And these things are are difficult. These these things are 
don't know what to do with them because they don't, haven't really understood who Jesus is. And now we see the Word of God opened up and the Holy Spirit is the only one who can lighten the mind, open the eyes of understanding to see who Jesus really is. I hope today, Lord, that we've seen that process begin in someone's heart, that the Holy Spirit is working even now to show them who Jesus is. We pray that you'd work in the hearts of people today. Bring us closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, there are some days that you don't really want to be the preacher. I'd like to be sitting out there with you and sometimes and listen to somebody else preach the Word of God. And I have to confess to you, though, when that happens, though, I always wish, well, I was up there preaching the Word of God. Don't like to sit in the pew all that much. But today is one of those days when I come to the pulpit and I'm glad to be the preacher. I'm glad to be the one who can talk to you about these kinds of things, about Christ being worthy, about what heaven is and looking forward to that wonderful place. There, there's nothing better that you could ever talk about than Jesus Christ. And I don't know how that, that I could even show you. I, I can't show you my heart in this matter. And I, and I feel like having sitting out there where you are, and you can't say anything. That, you get, that if you really get what I'm saying, you just burst with this. I, I want to I say it myself. I want to tell somebody about this. I hope you go away today feeling like this. We've heard from God. We've heard God speak to us in His Word. And He's told us about Christ. He's told us about His Son, how worthy that He is. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. No better thing that you could ever talk about than this stuff right here. I'm glad I'm the preacher today. And I know that you probably wish you were too. If you're a child of God, you wish... You're probably, I hope you're sitting there saying, I wish I'd said that. Say it to somebody. If you're here today without Christ, maybe you don't understand all the excitement that I'm talking about. I think it was last week I said, well, you're never going to understand these things. You're going to inside Christ to see him opened up in the gospel of Christ. It's only then that the mind comprehends the very things that we're talking about here. You must know Christ to see why this is so good. If you haven't received him today, I pray that you'll... you'll bow your head and just ask God to show you the truth of his word if you have questions about what we've said we have men in the back that can talk to you about it be happy to explain to you the goodness and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on Calvary Christians I hope that God's spoken to your heart in some way today rejoice in Christ let's sing another verse of our song God has spoken to your heart today. I just pray that you would respond to the call of God. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.